0: Thomas Purcelli joins us, chief U.S. economist with RBC Capital Markets. Tom Purcelli, how much of this new inflation is wage inflation, and what does the Fed do about it?
1: Yeah, so I, I think he, here's, here's what I think is really very interesting about, about this inflation report in particular. I think what we need to keep in mind is those weightings, I think those weightings are to, these new weightings, I think they're going to haunt inflation for the, the next few months. Um, you know, you now have a bigger weight on goods. And, and as we've been writing about for quite some time, the thing that's really doing most of the driving from an inflation perspective is, is really goods prices. Make no mistake, services are certainly um, starting the process of, of amping up here a little bit. But this is really a sort of a goods-dominated um, inflation backdrop. And what's interesting about that is this new weighting. The weighting is now about 1.5 percentage points more weight toward goods. Um, which again, just keep in mind—that's uh, this is sort of an interesting thing in the context of we are a service-dominated economy but goods now have a bigger weight. That's obviously a reflection of what happened last year. People were spending uh, uh, um, a a lot of this uh, extra money that they had on goods, not services. So I think what's going to wind up happening is, uh, if if the transition from goods to services spending um, uh, is sort of slower to evolve um, this year, and, and we think that that probably will be the case, That means that you could actually continue to see some some additional upward pressure um, on inflation um, because of this this new bigger weight on on goods i think that's a really sort of an interesting thing that that not a lot of people are talking about but here's but here's the punchline tom to all of this while i think that that'll be the case for the next you know sort of call it the next couple of months few months where you'll see continued upward pressure from goods I think what's going to wind up happening this year is that this transition is going to happen from p- people basically spending a lot on goods and shifting to services. And so what will wind up happening, I, I think, as the year progresses, is that this new firm weight um, in goods will actually wind up act- acting as an anchor around the neck of goods prices. So as people shift from goods to services spending, we think that that will actually wind up putting some uh, a pretty notable downward pressure um, in the goods space. I want to be clear you know, that's the anatomy of what we see happening over the balance of the year. Yeah. Um, I think in the immediate term, I do think that you're going to see continued upward pressure. So, so, t- so Tom, I think, and again, it's not to not answer your question directly, but I think that that's the thing that's really sort of doing most of the driving from from, from an inflation perspective. The, the consumer's are in a great spot from a wage perspective, you know, to sort of continue to sort of drive um, to drive spending. I mean, look, we all, we, we live in a nominal world, whether that's, you know, sort of, um, a, a better or worse idea. Um, but, and so I think that that, you know, sort of gives the, the consumer some, some confidence to, to be able to spend, but but again, I, I think that I- you're going to see this transition away, and I think goods prices could actually start the process of slowing pretty meaningfully. Again, give that, give that a handful of months, but I think that's probably
2: where we're going. Tom, get me to March, because we need to do March first. Yeah. Middle of March, March 16th, the Fed meets, what's on the table, and what on earth happens with that dot plot?
1: Yeah, so I think that you know, you're looking at probably four, four hikes this year. Um, I, you know, The Fed is going to go 25 to start this process off. I mean, look, again... I, You know, I I love that that Powell keeps on saying, you know, they they want to be humble and they want humility. Look, in all frankness, they should have had that last year, all of last year. I think what they actually need now this year is is also um, a, a hefty dose of patience. Because I think if the patience will be rewarded, if they do not get aggressive here early on in the cycle, inflation is going to start the process of slowing. At a minimum, base effects are going to eat into the year-on-year pace. But if I'm right about this transition from goods to services um, spending, and that taking a, a, quite a bit of the heat off of this, this you know, sort of the singular component that now has a bigger weight that's been doing a lot of the driving, I, I think that they can, they, if they have a bit of patience. They can avoid a 50. They can avoid going every meeting over the balance of the year. Um, but, uh, you know, it's uh, that's for Powell to decide.
3: What, where does the balance sheet come into play here, Tom? Because it's not just about the rate hike mechanism.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's true. I mean, look, uh, and uh, this is, I don't know how much time we have. This is, I'll try, to, I'll, <laughs> I'll try to keep this part of it tight. All I'll simply say is, QT is not the mirror image of QE. That's not the how it works. With QE, you know the amount of duration that the Fed is pulling out of the market, right? They're buying, you know, X number of tens or X number of sevens, et cetera. We know that definitively. With QT, you do not know the amount of duration that's being added back into the market because what happens when the Fed basically starts the process of, of unwinding the balance sheet, they create a funding gap between themselves and the Treasury. And so it's the Treasury that decides what duration is going to be added back into the market. So in other words, if the if Treasury Treasury is going to meet that funding gap with, you know, loading up on bills. Well, then there's no duration added back into the market. And we think that's actually what they're going to want to do because um, bills as a a relative to um, total outstanding is actually pretty, pretty small.
2: Hey, Tom, I've got a break to hit, So I've only got a few seconds, but let me just put a conclusion on this with you. Are you saying this gets worse before it gets better?
1: I don't think there is any question about that. But again, I think. You Live with with it being a little bit worse, because I think by the end of the year, it'll be quite a bit better.
2: Tom Porcelli of RBC Capital Markets. Tom, we appreciate you, sir. We always do. Thank you.
0: If you are in the stock market, you need to stop what you're doing now and listen to one William Booth. Bill Booth is with Epic, and they have a method. They have a style. And you need it when it's a bull market, you need it when it's a bear market, and you really need it among the historic tumult of the moment, the 10-year yield touching up near 2%. We're not quite there yet, uh, down negative 227 on the opening. Bill Booth, what is shareholder yield, and why is a study of that so valuable right now?
4: Morning. Uh, Shareholder yield is all about cash. Uh, Cash is king in the equity markets, in our view, and uh, shareholder yield is all about uh, owning companies that are returning gobs of cash flow to shareholders in the form of uh, dividends, share repurchases, or debt reduction. And in a market like this, uh, with the prospect of rising rates, I think there's been a lot of talk about shortening the duration. Of, of portfolios and you can think of shareholder yield as a short duration approach because you're getting more right uh, of the intrinsic value of the company up front
0: what do you do with a short duration folks this is the x-axis you hear me talk about what do you do with an x-axis dynamic shorter medium or longer with the huge cash flow tech generators like microsoft google and
4: amazon so I think those those companies actually uh, are owned in some of our shareholder yield strategies. Um, and I think in those instances, the dividend yields tend to be a bit more modest. Uh, but certainly, there are very large and aggressive uh, share repurchase programs. And so I think uh, we look at uh, dividends and repurchases of roughly equivalent forms of returning cash. And of course, there's another use of cash, which um, if you have right management teams, and I heard your comment about Disney and, and Iger and JPEC, if you have good management teams, we're happy to see reinvestment through things like M&A. And we know we saw Microsoft use some of its pocket change, $70 billion to <laughs> announce the acquisition of Activision. Um, and we're perfectly happy with, with M&A um, if, it, if it makes strategic and financial
5: sense. So, Bill, you know, again, we did have some good numbers from uh, Disney last night that Tom and I have been uh, parsing through, and I guess we're about two-thirds of the way through the earnings season here, and earnings have come in very strong and potentially allaying some of the valuation concerns in in this market. What's been your takeaway from the earnings that you've seen so far this season?
4: I'd I'd agree with your assessment. I think, on balance, they've been quite strong. Um, Certainly, we've had a few hiccups like uh, Meta the other day. (laughs) Uh, but I think, you know, some of these uh, earnings disappointments largely do seem to be, I would say, uh, company-specific issues, right? With Meta, clearly has to do with, you know, maybe it's competition, maybe it's the iOS changes to privacy. Um, so when we've had disappointments, I don't think they've been um, alarm bells that, whoa, there's something systematically wrong here. I think the earnings disappointments have largely been company-specific one-offs. And, and for most of the companies reporting, it's been quite, quite good and, and above expectations.
5: So I know some of the names you like. One jumped out at me, Sony. I would love to hear your Sony call here, because that's a company that a lot of people don't really know how to value. Is it an electronics company? Wait, wait, is it a media wait, wait, company? Wait,
0: wait, wait. This is brilliant. Bill Booth and Paul Sweeney, between the two of you, has Sony been a train wreck for 10 or is it 20 years? Uh,
5: uh, yeah, Tom, you're exactly right. And I don't think anybody really knows what to do with Bill? this name. Bill, what do you think about Sony well, here? Well, we
4: really, really like it. And actually, if you look at the stock price chart, it's, it's tripled over the last five years. So the train wreck has maybe got okay, the good. The, tra- the tracks. Um, it's funny because most people, when they think of Sony, they think like me uh, when I grew up. Sony was all about the Walkman. Sure. I don't even know what a cassette tape is, <laughs> let alone a Walkman. Um, but that that stodgy consumer electronics reputation has sort of stayed with the company. But uh, what Sony really is is a premier global media and content company. Sixty percent of its profit is now coming from video games, music, and movies. And we know we're in a world where content is king. And so this company has a 7% free cash flow yield, uh, valued very much like a stodgy consumer electronics company, even though it is a premier entertainment company. Um, and we think that, you know, as the company continues to deliver good, strong revenue and profit and free cash flow growth, um, that the stock will continue to work up even after its um, recent rise. And I will note that it did sell off on the uh, Microsoft Activision news on fears of increased competition in the uh, PlayStation business going head to head with with Xbox and a potentially more formidable Microsoft. But we're very comfortable that That Sony has um, the strategy and assets in place to to deal with that.
5: Yeah, Tom, I'm looking at the uh, COMP function for Sony. This is a stock that's over the last five years has had a compounding annual return of almost eighteen percent per year, so a smidge better than the S and P. That's amazing. How the
0: reputation, is yeah. completely removed from that.
5: Yeah, it's just extraordinary. So I, I just it wanted to get shows
0: how amateur I am.
5: That's why we wanted it. we get experts like Bill on here. <coughs> hey, Bill, I mean, this inflation. You know, when Tom goes to fill up the surveillance uh, Bentley, he sees it at the pump. When I go to the supermarket, I see it there. Inflation. I, I'm just I'm I continue to be concerned about it because. Many people in this market, most people in this market, have never really experienced long-term inflation. How concerned are you about that? Uh, After
4: this morning, a little bit more than I was last night. (laughs) Um, You know, the the readings this morning uh, were were troubling in the sense that we're we're seeing a broadening of inflation. You know, it was really a a good and a durable story for for a good spell. But now you've got services inflation over 4% year-on-year, um, and it really is a tax on the consumer. I, I, I see the same thing at the gas at the gas station myself. So um, it is a tax yeah. on the consumer. And so we sort of have, you know, maybe the Fed now, yeah. the rate market saying maybe there's a 50 percent chance of a big increase in March. And you have decelerating earnings growth probably through the rest of this year. That combination of a combination of rising rates and decelerating earnings growth generally is yeah. a good one for markets.
0: Bill, I did a chart this morning of American banking as compared to European banking. Is banking where you want to be given inflation, given the curve oddities we see? And is European banking a value or the mother of all continued value traps?
4: <laughs> well, for decades, it's been the value uh, mother of all value traps. Um, I think you know the, the the struggle with with banks in general is it's almost a goldilocks scenario because in theory rising rates are good for banks net interest margins we all know that but at some point we we know the last twelve hiking cycles eleven have resulted in a recession you don't want to own a bank going into recession so it's almost like
0: uh, yeah. the
4: market's saying with the financials goldilocks the, the Fed's going to do just enough to make the macro backdrop. Ideal for banks, but they're not going to do so much right. that they cause an economic contraction, and that's something that history says right. doesn't really happen all that often.
0: Bill Booth, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Epic Investments on shareholder at yield. Right now, we're going to digress, and when you go to Brown Harris Stevenson for those Stevens for those of you worldwide and across this nation, all you need to know is fancy real estate in New York. We're going to talk to Bess Friedman, their chief executive officer, about the real world. Bess, you've got a listing on 80th Street and not the fancy part of 80th Street, which is one bedroom, one bath, and a kitchen I can't turn around in, and it's popping 529000 My question to you, and this goes with all the great work that you do nationwide with Brown Hair Stevens, is do we have the income levels to afford the new real estate price you're touting
6: yeah i mean hi tom it's so nice to see you by the way um listen none of us expected that 2021 would be the perform the way that it was in real estate in new york city it came back with a vengeance and prices have gone up um but remember we were in a buyer's market we've now shifted to a seller's market So people made a lot of money during the pandemic and things are starting to open. There's a sense of safety. We have a new administration, new mayor and governor working together, um, looking to mitigate crime and get our city back and working. And so I think there's a lot of good things happening in New York City. It's turned around. But as you guys were talking about and frightening me a little bit with this inflation talk, uh, the CPI going up is, you know, not ideal. You know, we have less power in our money to spend. Um, but, you know, the trees okay. don't grow to the sky. But, best. Yes, best
0: this is really, really important. Is the lack of rising incomes one of the constraints on surging real estate inflation? Or is that just something nobody worries about because there's so much money sloshing around
6: yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a lot of money sloshing around, as you put it, um, and prices have ticked up, but not incredibly in New York City. And so people have come back and they're here and they're investing and they're changing, they're moving around. And so I don't think that's a huge the inflation piece is not the thing that's worrying people in New York City. It's mm. really their focus is making sure that crime is under control, uh, that we're focusing on getting people back to work. Because the market, it did not tick up so much in New York City, the prices. It's the other regions like Connecticut, Palm Beach. Those markets, you saw incredible prices go up. And now, the supply chain is really short. There's nothing to buy right. there.
3: It's an inventory issue. best. just because we are so focused on that inflation data today, given how hot it was, we're going to have to see some sort of reaction to that on the monetary side. We are expecting that the Federal Reserve is going to raise rates a number of times this year. When that translates through to higher mortgage rates, what impact is that going to have on real estate, not just here in New York City, but across the country?
6: Kelly, look, rates are still historically low, and I think it's good that they increase them and they go up maybe once or twice. It will be good because it can't keep moving at this pace. This is why part of the reason why the prices have gone up. Uh, It's a contributor. And so we can't, you know, can't be champagne and caviar forever. Things have to slow down a little bit. And so we need supply and demand to intersect in a better way in other regions so that the market will stay fluid. Um, But inflation, we can always, you know, we've dealt with inflation in the past. We've dealt with rates going up. What we can't have is a paralyzed market from something like a pandemic or like we saw after 9-11. Uh, an act of terrorism, that's when markets freeze and that's when people are scared. Inflation, we can deal with. We can manage Mm -hmm. with inflation.
3: Well, and obviously it's not just about on the monetary side. There's the fiscal side of the equation and there's a great debate about how that has contributed to the inflation we are seeing. But best on the fiscal side, a lot of what we thought might come to fruition under the Biden administration, differences, potentially a change in the salt cap, have not. What is the impact of that when you're thinking specifically of this tri-state area?
6: I mean, we're that's still they're still discussing that. We'd like to see that increase from ten thousand. I think they said eighty thousand dollars, which would be helpful. The good news, Kaylee, is that. We have a new city council. We have a new speaker, Adrian Adams, who is much more moderate. And we're hoping that the legislation in Albany is going to be much more reasonable economically so that we don't drive people out of the city. So I think we want to create sort of tax policy, as I always say, that's steeped in economics and that we work to create an environment that keep people here. We need rich people here. We don't want to drive them out. Mm-hmm. We want them to be here. Well, it's important for the city.
0: Best Freeman, thank you so much. We've got markets moving with Brown, Harris, Stevens What we're all talking about, which is the inflation and rent and ownership of real estate nationwide as well.
2: When I go out for dinner this Friday, do we need to take photo ID to get in a restaurant? On Saturday morning, do we need photo ID to get a coffee, to go into a cafe?
3: I believe the answer is it depends because there's no longer the mask or vaccine mandate as of today. A business doesn't have to ask you to wear a mask or check your identification. But that's going to depend on business to business. They're free to make their own decisions. Yeah. So, John, I guess it depends on where you go. Maybe yeah. bring the passport your John, uh, the just in your back pocket. John, the McDonald's
0: on Third Avenue is taking a very loose tack. On Would you like
2: that? to test yeah. this a little bit later this morning? <laughs> no, so. I, I
0: do that. I, I, you know, every day when I go there for breakfast, you know, we check
2: it out. Yeah. I look forward to checking it out a little bit later.
0: Okay, Christian is going, what are they talking about? With us, truly one of the world's experts on epidemiology and this virus. Christian Breyer joins us, of course, with John Hopkins in South Africa, and we're so honored he could attend to us on a weekly uh, basis. It is an important moment for me, Dr. Breyer, and that I just noticed in the Washington Post, the chart where I can report deaths have rolled over. They're not like cases, they're not like hospitalizations. But now that we've finally seen the moving average of deaths roll over, do you feel that will continue from 2,500 on down to the nirvana of 900 deaths?
7: Well, we always knew that deaths were going to lag behind hospitalization, yes. and hospitalizations behind cases. The cases are down hospitalizations finally coming down, and so the decline in deaths is is what we'd expected. Uh, it's still high, and remember that we started at a very high baseline before Omicron in the United States. So, uh, but yes, it is uh, it is trending in the right direction. We're paying attention to the new Omicron sub yep. including the, the 0.2, uh, but it again looks highly infectious and not as pathogenic as Delta.
0: What should we know about that? Give us 30 seconds on these new sub-variants. Well, these have emerged uh, within Omicron
7: lineage, and they share that same high infectiousness. Uh, but it does appear uh, that they are not more uh, lethal, not more pathogenic. It's taken over very quickly here in South Africa. So that the uh, Omicron BA.2 is now the predominant uh, variant that, that is turning up here. Uh, but what we're seeing happily is uh, while infections uh, you know, are rising with that variant, Deaths are still declining. Uh, yesterday, there were only 22 people who died in this country. A uh, week before that, it was under 100, but uh, nowhere near that low. So uh, that's really good news.
3: Okay, Dr. Byra, as we're talking about different variants in other parts of the world, Dr. Anthony Fauci, when talking about the situation here in the US to the Financial Times yesterday, said that the US is heading out of the quote, full blown pandemic phase of COVID-19. I guess full blown mm-hmm. as a phrase is probably open to interpretation. Do you agree with that characterization?
7: Well, I think part of what uh, Dr. Fauci was referring to is the fact that, first of all, we now have uh, the broadly neutralizing antibodies, we have the antivirals, uh, our treatment is getting better, and the Omicron wave is declining. Uh, So we have many more tools to manage COVID. Uh, Again, of course, uh, we have an epidemic of severe disease in the unvaccinated and in the unboosted and in the elderly who are either unvaccinated or unboosted. That hasn't changed, uh, but the toolkit has greatly expanded. And I think that's really what he's referring to, that we have so many more
6: options.
3: Well, and part of that toolkit, as you mentioned, is boosters. He went on in that interview to say that he doesn't think Mm. that every American is going to get to need regular boosters. Where are we in that conversation? not just in terms of getting doses of existing vaccines, but whether or not we can create a vaccine that maybe addresses all future variants as well.
7: Well, there's obviously a great deal of work underway uh, on that front. Uh, people have been working on a pan-coronavirus vaccine. Uh, both Pfizer and Moderna are working on Omicron-specific vaccines. So that is absolutely happening. I think the the challenge that we're still seeing is that there's a lot of breakthrough infections, even in fully vaccinated people with Omicron. That's part of why it's spreading so effectively, uh, as we all know. Uh, but the boosters really make a difference in terms of whether you get severe disease, right. whether you end up in the hospital.
0: Is the language a breakthrough infection, nothing more than endemic? Is that honestly the definition of endemic?
7: Not really, Tom. What, what we mean by a breakthrough is a, a, uh, a confirmed infection, a PCR positive, and somebody who's been vaccinated. Um, so Omicron has had the ability to do that. Uh, we do also see infections, uh, breakthrough infections in people boosted, uh, but of course, uh, much less severe uh, and less common. Um, by endemic, what we really mean essentially is that um, there will be upticks, uh, but the majority of the population will be protected either by natural immunity, by having recovered from COVID or by vaccination and boosting, obviously you're better off if you have the
2: vaccine. Doctor, we're struggling at the moment to identify whether certain policies are backed by science or backed by politics. The recent Mm. guidance around mass mandates, the removal of them, the adjustment of them, what's been your reaction to them?
7: Well, you know, we're we are on the right side of the Omicron curve coming down, but we still, as I said, have a a high number of deaths, high number of hospitalizations. Many of our hospitals are stressed. Uh, So the idea that uh, governors, particularly in the blue states, are lifting these restrictions because they're so unpopular at a time where we're just getting out of this does feel epidemiologically uh, not supported by the evidence. I think that's why you heard Rochelle Walensky say. As far as the CDC is concerned, we're not ready to do this yet. So there is a disconnect there. Uh, and I think that disconnect is largely political and not epidemiologically driven.
2: Doctor, thank you for being so clear on that. Dr. Chris Byer there of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health.
0: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. For insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is
2: Bloomberg.